Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. We're not going to be talking about uh, what happened on 9-11. Uh, we're not going to be dealing with who did what and who didn't what, didn't do what, and who's responsible and who's not responsible. But uh, we will look at what the Bible has to say regarding a 9-11 event that is biblical. Uh, and that's something that perhaps you might have not thought about before, but we'll see if we can uh, find it together in the scriptures. And the biblical 9-11 has to do, uh, has a lot of similarities, has to do with what happened in 9-11 in that there are certain parallels. Uh, if you recall, uh, when 9-11 uh, happened, uh, things changed drastically, not only in the United States, but all over the world. And uh, the days of pre-9-11 are a memory now. We can't go back then. They're only a memory. Every time we travel, I think, in the airports, every time we line up for those long security lines and take our shoes off, you have to take your shoes off here in America. Uh, that's a result of what happened at 9-11. It's not just the shoes off, but you know everything that goes with that, all the rules, all the laws, all the different things that have happened as a result of that. It was an event that marked a change that cannot be reversed. Isn't that right? That's what happened in uh, September uh, of, uh, what year was it, 2001. In the same way, we have a biblical event that's why it's called the biblical 9-11. We have a biblical event that when it happens, things cannot return to how they were before. It's a very important event. It's an event that will change everything in the spiritual world and also in the physical world. And this event is what we will be talking about today. Uh, the biblical 9-11 and what the impact of that is for us here today and on us here today. In uh, Revelation chapter 7, we read about this event. The first few verses of chapter 7. Now, all the verses are on the screen, and I, uh, I would like you to, to pay attention because you might be challenged with some thoughts that are shared. So I want you to pay careful attention and think about what we're talking about and resist, uh, resist sleep, okay? Revelation chapter 7. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel stand, ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And of course, the implication there is very clear that as soon as that event takes place, as soon as the sealing is finished, then the angels are to release those winds that they're holding back and there will be trouble and strife and commotion on the earth. Now this event, the sealing of God's people, which I refer to as 144,000 here, this sealing event is a very, very important event. We also refer to it when that is accomplished, we refer to it by another name. Does anyone know what other name we refer to the event when the sealing of God's people is finished? It's called the close of probation. So important and so significant this event, it's like a one-way street. Once it happens, you can't go back. Isn't that right? Things are changed forever, permanently, 
when that event happens. And so, as I said, so important is this event that not only in the book of Revelation does God talk about it, but he also talks about it in the Old Testament. And in the counterpart, in the parallel passage for this particular passage here in Revelation, the Old Testament parallel is found in the book of Ezekiel, particularly in chapter 9. So we'll look at that and we'll see what we can learn. Ezekiel is talking about the same event. He uses different words to describe the same event. Ezekiel 9 verses 4 to 6, he says, And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the forehead. Same thing. Of the men that sign the cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. And to the others he said in mine hearing, Go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women. But come not near any man upon whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. Now that's a very solemn passage, a very serious passage, isn't it? It's talking about the same thing, a mark or a seal that is set in the forehead. And of course, the seal that is set in the forehead is not something visible. It's something that signifies an understanding and a harmony in the mind between the person who is sealed and between the originator of the seal. That is, of course, God. Isn't that right? Now, I don't think I need to ask for a show of hands as to how many want to have the seal of God. I think everybody would put their hands up. But notice here very carefully, brothers and sisters, there are certain qualifications and requirements for us before we can receive the seal or this mark. Notice here, the mark here is given to one group of people. It says those who do what? Who sigh and cry for the abominations that are done in the midst. So we must be among those who sigh and cry but we also must be among those who know and understand what the abominations are. Isn't that right? If you don't know what the abominations are, can you sigh and cry? No. Therefore, can you receive the mark? No. According to this verse. So we want to understand a little more what the significance of that for us is. And so important is this event, like I said, it's repeated a number of times. As a matter of fact, in the Spirit of Prophecy, we're given this interesting quotation in Manuscript Releases, Volume 18, page 236. It says, study the ninth chapter of Ezekiel. That's just what we read, isn't that right? These words will be literally fulfilled. Yet the time is passing and the people are asleep. They refuse to humble their souls and to be converted. Not a great while longer will the Lord bear with the people who have had such great and important truths revealed to them, but who refuse to bring these truths into their individual experience. So Ezekiel 9, which talks about the sealing and what happens after and the qualifications of those who are sealed, we are told is an important chapter. And we are told to study this chapter because these events will be literally fulfilled. And then it says that the people are asleep. Isn't that our condition according to the parable of the ten virgins? We are asleep. So this message is a wake-up message. So if you hear some things that are straight, that might shock you, that's good. Because wake up is the whole intent of the message. This is really what God is, is, is trying to do in prophecy, particularly in this particular prophecy, because the time is passing, as it is saying, and we do not recognize or realize the responsibility of when we are given great truth, and we do not live up to that truth. So this is what we want to do today. We'll be studying, we'll be 
obeying this instruction. Is that all right? We will study the ninth chapter of Ezekiel. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn there. Like I said, we'll have them on the screen, but you can look at the, the Bible as well because we will be looking at some verses in context. Ezekiel chapter 9. And of course, in order to study and understand Ezekiel 9, the prophecy does not begin in chapter 9. It actually begins in chapter 8. So for us to understand 9, we need to understand 8. That's how we can really study it and understand it. So Ezekiel chapter 8, turn with me there if you would like. And we will, go, we will do a very simple Bible study. We'll do an expository Bible study as to this chapter. We'll see what meaning we can learn. And we will see if it has anything to do with us today. Because, you know, sometimes when we share present truth with people, and I'm sure you hear that as well, many times I hear people say, well, you know, this is a side issue when you talk about the truth about God. They say, well, you know, uh, this, this is not something that we should worry about in the last days. This is a side issue. Actually, this is a distraction. As a matter of fact, I one time was, was, was talking to a brother, and he told me something that, that I have not forgotten. It was so surprising, I have not forgotten it. He told me this. He said, I am too busy preaching the three angels' messages to bother with this stuff about the Godhead. That's what he said. And I could not help but wonder, what in the world is he preaching? Because doesn't the first angel say, fear God and give glory to him and worship him? It has everything to do with the message when you understand really the implications of it. But we want to look at this study because there's another popular objection that I hear all the time that people do not really see things in perspective. We'll understand that a little better when, we, when we're close to finish. So I'll talk about that later. But Ezekiel chapter 8 will begin with the very first verse, okay? Ezekiel chapter 8 verse 1 says, And it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I sat in mine house, and the elders of Judah sat before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell there upon me. Who's speaking? Ezekiel, where is he? Yes, in his house. That's, that's just what the verse says. But, but where is he? In the, which location of the earth is he? He's in exile. He's in Babylon. Okay? And uh, he's sitting there, and there are the people of the Lord before him, the elders of Judah. Now, something I want us to keep in mind before we go on. The picture that is being presented here in this chapter, from the context of chapter 9, what time period in the earth is it dealing with? The close of human probation. Okay, because we have a tendency to read the Old Testament and place it in the Old Testament timeline. And this is the tendency that always happens, especially reading what Ezekiel has to say here. We have to constantly remind ourselves what Ezekiel is being shown and what is happening here is in the context of the time period of the last days. It's not something that happened hundreds of years ago. It is something that will take place. We're actually living in that period right now. And the picture that God is revealing to Ezekiel is actually a picture of his church at the time period when probation is about to close. Okay, I want us to keep that in mind because that's the backdrop. That timing is very significant. It helps us appreciate the urgency of the message that is in this chapter. Okay, verse 2. Then I beheld, and lo, a likeness as the appearance of fire from the appearance of his loins, even downward fire, and from his loins, even upward, as the appearance of brightness, as the color of amber. He sees someone that he describes, a very bright figure. Who is he seeing? It's Christ. 
Same description, very similar description to what John saw in the book of Revelation. So here is Ezekiel, he goes into vision and Christ appears to Ezekiel. Something of significance that is being revealed here. Verse 3. And he put forth the form of an hand and took me by a lock of mine head and the spirit lifted me up between the earth and the heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem to the door of the inner gate that looketh toward the north where was the seat of the image of jealousy which provoketh to jealousy. Okay, there's a lot in this verse. One piece at a time. Who did he see, first of all? Christ. And that's interesting here when he says, and he put forth the form of an hand. Who's he referring to? It's Christ. Isn't that right? So Christ in vision takes Ezekiel by a lock of his hair and then he says, the Spirit lifted me up. So who's the Spirit? Christ. It's Christ. That's just on the side. Yes, used interchangeably. So Christ is the Spirit that is inspiring Ezekiel here. So Ezekiel is in vision and he is carried. And where is he carried to? All the way to Jerusalem. And he is brought particularly to the temple. And in this vision, he comes to the gate, which is on which side? The north. And right there, he sees something. He sees something that is called what? The image of jealousy. jealousy and it provokes to? Jealousy. To jealousy. Well, we need to understand what this image is. It's some kind of an idol that he could see in this vision. And this idol is causing jealousy. Well, what is it that provokes God to jealousy? He said that very plainly. Exodus 34, 14, that's very true. Some of you are saying their answer. God says, for thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. So here Ezekiel comes to the sanctuary, to the temple, the place where God is worshipped. He's looking at the north gate, the inner gate, and he sees an image that's provoking to jealousy. In other words, he's seeing an image of a false God, an idol. Isn't that right? And remember, this was not taking place in Jerusalem. This is a vision for us. That's very important to keep in mind. And so this is what provokes God to jealousy. Not only there, but also we see it in Deuteronomy 32. God said essentially the same thing. Verse 21. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities. And I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. False gods. The worship of any other God, provokes God to jealousy. And so this is why Ezekiel says he sees this image of jealousy that provokes to, to jealousy. It's this false God. False gods provoke God to jealousy. Okay, let's carry on. Verse 4. And behold, back in Ezekiel 8 now. That's what we'll be keep going back to. Okay, that's what we're going through in order. Verse 4. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there according to the vision that I saw in the plain. Verse 5. Then said he unto me, Son of man... Lift up thine eyes now, the way toward the north. So I lifted up mine eyes, the way toward the north, and behold, northward, at the gate of the altar, this image of jealousy in the entry. You know, it's interest, interesting, he says the same thing twice, basically, doesn't he? It's like he's brought in this vision, and he notices something as he's passing. He notices this image. And then Christ speaks to him and says, Son of man, Ezekiel, I want you to pay careful attention to that. Look carefully and take note of what is happening. And that's what he says. He lifts up his eyes and he beholds there at the gate of the altar this image of jealousy. Well, what takes place at this gate? What 
happens at the gates? It says it's the gate of the altar, isn't that right? What happens on the altar? Sacrifices are offered, okay? Now these sacrifices represent what or who? Represent Christ. That's the form of true worship that God had given. Now who was in charge of that particular area of the sanctuary? It was the priests, isn't that right? The high priest and of course his helpers, they, they ordained, uh, they officiated and worked in that area. So here we see something very interesting. In the area where there is the true worship of God and the symbols that signify uh, the Lamb of God and Christ himself, where the priests have jurisdiction, in that very place is set up this false image that provokes to jealousy. And it says it's right there in the entry. So just as people are coming in to worship the true God, they are met with this false God in the area where the priests had their jurisdiction. Now that's important to keep in mind because as the situation develops, we will see the picture a little clearer. I just want us to keep that particular aspect in mind. In other words, here we see that the spiritual leaders have a responsibility in this false worship, in this deceptive worship that has occurred right there in that vision. They have a measure of responsibility for this apostasy. And remember, this is a picture of the church when? Just before the close of probation. That's, that's about now, really. And that's what we're told to study. So I, just, I want you to just keep that in mind because the language is always, you know, the mind just naturally goes back to, oh, this is happening there. This is something that's happening now. And God is revealing that to Ezekiel in these, in these visions. Let's keep going. Psalm 81 and verse 9 tells us plainly, there shall no strange God be in thee, neither shall thou worship any strange God. And that instruction is violated right here in this vision that we see Ezekiel is beholding. Time and again, God has made it very, very plain and very obvious. And the fact that Christ is showing Ezekiel these things, the import is for us really today. Christ saw that there is grave danger for his church in the last days, that he has made sure that Ezekiel records this for us today. This is the import of it. And I don't want us to make any mistake about this, brothers and sisters. When we talk about God's professed remnant people and God's professed remnant church, which church are we talking about? There is one church that is the professed remnant of God that claims to keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. You familiar with that church? Yes, it's the Adventist church. So we have, we have make no mistake about it. This prophecy is directly written for God's professed people who are preparing for the sealing. And God is revealing to, the, to us a picture of what things will be like or what things are like. So I, I want us to keep that in mind and not miss it. God asks a very interesting question in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. You know, it's a very sad verse. You know, God says, look at the Babylonians. Have they changed their gods? The Babylonians who are worshiping a false god are consistent. They always worship their god. Look at the Assyrians. Have they changed their gods? No. Look at the Philistines. They don't change their gods, and they are false worshippers who are worshipping false gods. But my people, 
who are worshiping the true God, unfortunately and sadly, they have changed. And they've changed their glory for that which does not profit. Of course, when it says here their glory, God is the glory of his people. So God is lamenting this sad, sad fact. And, and Ezekiel is seeing that in these pictures that Christ is revealing to him. Okay, verse 6, let's keep going. He said furthermore unto me, that's Christ speaking to Ezekiel, Son of man, seest thou what they do? Even the great abominations that the house of Israel committeth here, that I should go far off from my sanctuary, but turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations. And I find it interesting, this conversation. Christ tells Ezekiel, it's like Christ wants to make sure Ezekiel didn't miss it. He says, Ezekiel, did you see what's going on here? Did you take note of what's happening? And then he calls what's happening, what? Abomination. Great abominations. And remember, to know and to sign a cry for the abominations that are done is one of the qualifications if you want to be sealed or if you want to receive the, the mark that goes on the forehead. And then notice the purpose of these abominations. What are they designed to do and accomplish? To drive Christ from his sanctuary. sanctuary. The abominations are designed to drive Christ from his sanctuary. So in the last days, today, we will find that there was something will happen in the church. We will adopt some kind of worship that will drive Christ away from his sanctuary. That's what he says here, isn't that right? Now, when it talks about the sanctuary, like we said earlier, we're not just talking about, you know, the temple there in Jerusalem. Where does Christ want to be the high priest above all else? It's in this sanctuary, isn't that right? So here we have something that will endanger and will threaten the fact that Christ is the priest of this sanctuary and it seeks to drive him away. A false worship is going to come in among God's people and its purpose is to drive Christ away from his sanctuary. That's what's happening. And that's what Ezekiel is seeing. But let's go on, verse 7. And he, so not only that, but then Christ tells Ezekiel, turn thee yet again, you will see greater abominations. So the story is going to get worse before it gets better. Verse 7. And he brought me to the door of the court to behold a hole in the wall. So here Ezekiel comes, and if we were to, to uh, illustrate that, uh, he's brought to the door of the court. If you remember when God instructed Moses to build the temple, he had only one entrance into the court, only one door. And as he is brought to the door, Ezekiel says here that when he looked, he saw a hole in the, in the wall. Okay, keep that in mind because we want to understand exactly what this is talking about. You remember in the sanctuary, in the wilderness sanctuary, you could only access the, the courtyard from one door. There was no other way. You couldn't jump over the wall. There were no holes in the wall. If you were living on the, on the back side of the sanctuary, you would have to walk around and come in through the, through the door. There was one door. You know, one time I showed that picture and I said, how many doors? And people said three. Uh, it's, it's one entrance. The, the posts are there just to hold the, the, the whole thing up. But it's one entrance. That's the idea. Only one entry. And uh, I think we all know what that door represents. It represents Christ. Christ himself said it. John 10, 9, I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. So now we find Ezekiel sees the door and then he notices something. He notices there is actually another 
hole. And then something begins to happen. So the door represents Christ. I want you to keep that in mind because the hole also signifies something. Well, what about this hole? Let's read verse 8. Then said he unto me, Son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I had digged in the wall, behold, a door. Interesting. He sees this hole. Christ tells him, okay, Ezekiel, start digging. He begins to dig in this hole, and the hole gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden, in front of him, he sees there is this other door or another entrance. Isn't that right? An alternative entrance that is secret. That needs to be uncovered. So Ezekiel, in verse 9, is told, and he said unto me, go in. And behold, the wicked abominations that they do here. Verse 10, so I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. So here we find something very, very interesting. Ezekiel finds the secret door and behind the secret door, he sees this idol worship, idolatry, idols, and every creeping thing that is portrayed on the walls inside this secret door that he had to uncover. You see, brothers and sisters, this is highly significant for us here today because that means there will be a subtle and not easily seen influence that will bring in false worship that God is using Ezekiel to uncover. And this secret worship and this false secret worship actually takes place behind this alternative door, door or an alternative entrance into the sanctuary or an alternative mediator, if you wish. Because Christ is the door, he's the only way in and out, he's the only mediator, isn't that right? He's the only intercessor. So now we have another secret door, that means there is another Mediator or another intercessor. You ever heard about that today? A mystery door. Okay, a mystery door. That's another way to put it. Thank you. That's true. So Ezekiel is seeing all that in pictures and in visions. And it's amazing that it's only when you understand certain truths that you begin to understand what the prophecy really is talking about. And behind this door, he sees all this false worship, all these idols and all these pictures and all these false images that are portrayed. Now, idolatry, we, we might look at that and say, well, what does that mean? You know, what's the significance of all these false pictures and idols and, and images? Where does idolatry begin? It begins in the heart. And Ezekiel actually says that. Ezekiel 14. One other time, this event happened. It says, Son of man, these men have set up, verse 3, have set up their idols where? In their heart. And put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of at all by them? You see, there is a very important link between the physical and the spiritual, as we said. What Ezekiel is seeing here in a picture is a picture of God's people. And also it's a picture of what is happening in the minds of God's people. That there is going to be confusion over worship. In the collective body of God's people, in the church... And of course, ultimately, if it's happening in the church, that means it's happening in the mind. In the last days. Just before the close of? Probation. probation. You know, because some people say, you know, all this talk about, about the Godhead, and this is not end time issues. We have been told what 
the issues will be in the last days. And usually people will quote statements from Spirit of Prophecy and they'll say, Sunday sacredness and immortality of the soul. These are the issues, nothing else. She doesn't say anything about the understanding of God. Well, Ellen White might not say it in those words, but uh, how about Ezekiel? Does he qualify? He's a prophet. And let's see what else he says about that. So idolatry begins in the heart, begins in the mind. It's a false understanding. And that's exactly what we're told in Spirit Prophecy, uh, Testimonies, Volume 5. Notice what it says here. Are we worshippers of Jehovah, page 173 and 174, or of Baal, of the living God, or of idols? No outward shrine may be visible. There may be no image for the eye to rest upon. Yet, we may be practicing idolatry. It is as easy to make an idol of cherished ideas or objects as to fashion gods of wood or stone. Thousands have a false conception of God and His attributes. They are as verily serving a false god as were the servants of Baal. Are we worshipping the true God as He is revealed in His Word, in Christ, in nature? Or are we adoring some philosophical idol enshrined in His place? Now, as a previous study I met shared, who is the true God? Father. It's the Father. And we see here very clearly, it's the, it's the Father who is revealed in His Word, in Christ and in nature. Or are we worshipping something else? And she calls it a philosophical idol enshrined in His place. So this is why Ezekiel is seeing in pictures what the danger is for us in these days. Let's keep going. Verse 11 and 12. So he's in this room behind the secret door, okay? He sees all these uh, pictures and images. And there stood before them 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel. And in the midst of them stood Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Now let's, before we read verse 12, here he sees the ancients. Who are the ancients of the house of Israel? Leaders. The leaders, right? the elders, the leaders, and he sees them with this particular individual that is named. He sees them doing something. They are offering up a thick cloud of incense. That means a lot, right? What's incense represent? Prayer. Prayer. So here we see these leaders, the spiritual leaders of God's people, are participating in the secret worship and prayer to these false gods. Sound familiar? That's what Ezekiel is seeing. And he's seeing that and writing that for us today. And though all this is taking place in the dark, secretly, behind this door that he had to dig and he had to un uh, uncover. Verse 12, Then said he unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers of his imagery, for they say, The Lord seeth, seeth us not. The Lord has forsaken the earth. You know, you can just feel the anguish here in the words of Christ. Ezekiel is seeing that, but Christ said, Ezekiel, are you seeing this? Are you taking note of what is taking place in my temple, in my sanctuary, among my people? And the anguish in Christ's voice, in Christ's heart, is really the anguish over His people today. And this is revealing that to us right now. Verse 12, okay, let's keep going. Verse 13, let's see what else takes place. He said also unto me, Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. Verse 14, Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for 
Tammuz. So how many things has he seen so far? Okay, he's seen at the north gate, the image, then he goes into the secret door, two. Now he's going to see a third thing. Now notice the progression, it keeps getting worse. It's not getting better, it's getting worse. How much worse could it be? He goes out here, we see again, to the door. That's where he started, right? You with me? Is that where he started? The door that was toward the, the north. But this time he sees something else. What does he see there? He sees women, and what are they doing? Weeping for Tammuz. Now, the, uh, the, the expression that is used here needs to be understood when we look at the margin and, and the meaning properly. When it says weeping for Tammuz, they weren't just sitting there crying. They were actually, as the margin says, they were weeping in a lewd and idolatrous manner. These were some immoral practices that the women got involved in that is involved in the false worship. Okay, you with me so far? I don't want to go to too much detail, but you understand what I mean. This is a lewd practice. That's what's represented here as weeping for Tammuz. And he sees here the women doing that. Now, what does the women represent? The church. The church. When Paul speaks to the Corinthians, he says, I have espoused you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Isn't that right? God's people are, rep are represented as a woman. So here we see the condition that of this false worship that is taking place. Now we see the people of the church, the members, are now openly present at the gate. And they are involved in this idolatrous, adulterous worship. That's what the women signify here. In other words, the fact that this is getting worse is signified by the fact that it first started there, there was no one there that he saw, and secretly the leaders had this worship, and now this situation is getting so much worse that it is affecting the entire church. And now he sees openly the women outside participating in this service, this false service. So there is a progression of it getting worse and worse. In the Bible, this particular uh, Weeping in a lewd manner is referred to by a term. It's called uh, adultery, really. And what does adultery really involve? In Judges 2.17, we're told, And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a-whoring after other gods. That's what spiritual adultery is, isn't it? When you leave your husband and go after another one, worshiping false gods. And that's what God says provokes him to jealousy. He says, and bow themselves unto them, and they turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. So in other words, we see here this picture that God's people, God's church, leaders, as well as laity, are going to be involved in what the Bible calls a whoring after other gods, just before the close of probation. Now, isn't that interesting? You know, I find it interesting because when people quote to me Ellen White and say, well, Ellen White didn't say, it's like Ellen White is the only one who prophesied about what will happen in the last days. That's not the case. Just because Ellen White didn't say something doesn't mean it doesn't happen. How about Ezekiel? You know, is Ellen White more of a prophet than Ezekiel? No, Ezekiel said that God's people, just before the close of probation, are going to have a problem when it comes to worshiping the true God. As a matter of fact, he says we will be deceived. And if we don't realize that, and if we don't recognize the abominations and sigh and cry for them, we will not receive the mark that is set in the forehead. That's how serious it is, brothers and sisters. 
That's a serious situation. Now all this, uh, all this false worship, all this idolatry is taking place where? At the? Particularly, it's in the temple, that's right, it's at the? North gate, isn't that right? Now what's the significance of the north gate? You see, Satan here is interested in this, that's his whole motive. His motive is to deceive God's people and he, he causes this whole deception to occur and he sets up this situation at the north gate. What is it about Satan being interested in the north gate? Why the north? Because the north has very important uh, implications, as we shall see. If you remember, in Isaiah 14, Satan wanted to do something that has to do with the north. Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14 says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cast down to the, cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. So Satan has had his eyes on the north side. Why? Because that's where God has his throne. And that's where he desired to be. Uh, and of course, when God told Moses to build the temple, to build the sanctuary, he told him to build it after the pattern. And in that sanctuary, we find something interesting on the north side. And that's of significance for us because it helps us understand the situation a little better. In Exodus 26, we read about it in verse 35. God speaking to Moses, he says, And thou shalt set the table without the veil, the candlestick over against the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south, and thou shalt put the table on the north side. Now here, of course, he's referring to which table? The table of? Showbread. Now if you remember in the sanctuary, uh, maybe we'll put a picture up that will help us. In the sanctuary, in the holy place, there were three items, isn't that right? And the location of the items was of significance. God, made God told Moses, make sure you put this one there, and this one there, and this one there. And when it comes to the north, Moses, he said, I want you to put the table of showbread. You see, the table of showbread represents what is on the north side. Where Satan wanted to sit, isn't that right? So for it to illustrate, this picture is a little bit, and the north is down, yeah, that's where the sh table of showbread is, it's on the north side. So if we were to put it right side up with the north up, we find that the table of showbread is the one located on the north side. Now this is not uh, to scale, this, this illustration is not to scale, it's just so we can get a visual picture uh, of it. And on this table of showbread, there was something very significant. Let's see what else God told Moses. Exodus 25, verses 23 to 25. I want you to pay careful attention here because these details that God gave to Moses are important to help us understand something. He says, Thou shalt also make a table of shittim wood, which uh, two cubits shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof, and thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, and make thereto a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt make unto it a border and hand breadth round about, and thou shalt make a golden crown to the border thereof round about. So this table of showbread had around it a double crown. Isn't that right? Now, uh, of course, the table of showbread was gold. Gold in the scripture represents the divine nature or, the, or divinity. And what does a crown represent? Kingdom, king, royalty. Isn't that right? A king wears a crown. And this table of showbread has not one crown, but two, a double crown. 
Now that's of significance, so we'll see in a minute why. So there is this table of showbread, and there is a double crown around the table of showbread. And on the table of showbread, of course, they put the showbread. That's what the table is for. And notice the instruction here. Again, it's interesting. Leviticus 24, 5 and 6. And thou shalt take fine flour and bake 12 cakes thereof. Two-tenths deal shall be in one cake. And thou shalt set them in two rows, six in a row, upon the pure table before the Lord. So on this table of showbread, which was on the north side, which had a double crown, they were to put 12 loaves of bread with the ingredients given there, but they were not to just place them in any order. They were to stack them in two piles. Isn't that right? So the two piles would have six loaves each. Now this was very highly significant. The table of showbread or the bread on the table was also called the bread of the presence. If you look it up in the concordance. Can you tell me what showbread means? Show, yeah, the show, that's, that's, what I'm, that's what I mean. It's, it's called the table of the presence. It's where God's, it means the, the bread of the face, or God's face, or God's presence is there. Now, this bread represents what? It's very obvious, we've been saying it. it represents God. What did Jesus say? Remember what he said? I am? Okay, oh yeah, that's, that's the, sorry, let's go back a minute here. Yeah, that's two stacks, okay, just seeing you have the picture. Okay, Jesus said in John 6, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And Jesus also said, I and my father are, are one. So on the north side, we have this table of showbread that has a double crown that has two stacks of bread. And Jesus says, I am the bread. The table of showbread signifies the throne where God sat. And we're told in the scriptures that Christ sits also on the throne with his father, as we, as we are told in, in the book of Revelation, chapter 3 and verse 21. Jesus says to him that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his, in his throne. And that's why God told his people that they were to put only two piles of bread. You know what that signifies? That the throne in heaven is occupied only by two individuals, not three. The third one was the one who said, I will be like the most, and I want to put my throne on the sides of the north as well. Now, it's interesting because with 12 loaves of bread, could, you, could God have told them to make three piles of equal amount? Easy. Or four piles. Or one pile. He didn't say one or three. He said two. Why? It means something, because there is two divine beings on the throne. That's why there is a double crown around the table, and that's why it's on the sides of the north. So the devil has this attraction to the north. He has a problem with the north. He wants to sit on the sides of the north. Now, uh, I could go on. Our time is running fast. Let's just read this statement quickly from the Spirit of Prophecy, because uh, it sheds more light on the fact that there are two occupants to the throne. It says here, we won't read the whole thing, but it says in Patriots and Prophets, page 36, we notice here it says, the Son of God shared the Father's throne and the glory of the eternal self-existent one encircled both. Now this is the meeting where God had all the angels come and he sat his son and he told them about the true position of the son. This is before Satan was cast out of heaven. So the throne is shared by the Father and the 
son. There are two occupants to the throne. So if we were to illustrate the, what Satan wanted to do, it actually becomes quite alarming because this is the table of showbread with its two stacks of six each. And the Bible tells us that Satan said, I want to sit, I want to put my throne also on the sides of the north. So if we were to add Satan's throne, theoretically, because he couldn't accomplish that, we find a very interesting situation. We have now three piles of six loaves each. Isn't that right? Now all of a sudden that number now translates into something because it has to do with false worship in the book of Revelation. Now Satan attempted to do this physically and actually in heaven and he failed. But he is having more success in establishing his throne in the minds of God's people on the north side where only God and his son should sit. And Ezekiel is looking at this and Jesus is telling him, Ezekiel, are you seeing what is happening among my people? Make sure you take note of that. Now, who is this God, the 666 God? We'll explore that a little more, but you know, it's very easy to find out. If you look at history, the 666 God is the sun God and sun worship. Ancient sun worship was the worship of 666. And we'll do a little brief review of that, but uh, let's see what else we're told here regarding a throne and occupants of the throne because people don't like this conclusion because it's a little bit too alarming and startling. In earlier writings, page 54, we're told once again, I saw a throne and on it sat the Father and the, and the Son. I gazed on Jesus' countenance and admired His lovely person. The Father's person I could not behold for a cloud of glorious light covered Him. I asked Jesus if His Father had a form like Himself. He said he had, but I could not behold it. For said he, if you should once behold the glory of his person, you would cease to exist. Now, of course, this was around the time period, 1844. So we see very clearly, before Satan was cast out of heaven, there were two occupants on the throne. Isn't that right? Down here in history, about a hundred or so years ago, we find again that on the throne there are two occupants. On it said the Father and the Son. Now it's interesting because the rest of the narrative here, and uh, I encourage you to look at that when you have time in early writings, we find something very interesting that uh, is described, I don't want to read the whole thing because it's quite long, but I'll just tell you about it quickly. Uh, the servant of the Lord sees uh, the people praying and Christ gets up and moves into the most holy place. You remember that vision? It's the end of the 2300 days. Uh, sorry, she, the Father goes in first, and then Christ gets up to follow, and then the people pray to Christ. And it tells us here that, uh, you know, they pray, uh, My Father, give us thy spirit. Then Jesus would breathe upon them the Holy Ghost. In that breath was light and power, much love, joy, and peace. I turned to look at the company who were still bowed before the throne. That's where Christ left. They did not know that Jesus had left it. Satan appeared where? To be by the throne, trying to carry on the work of God. This is always Satan's desire. I saw them look up to the throne and pray, Father, give us thy spirit. Satan would then breathe upon them an unholy influence. In it there was light and much power, but no sweet love, joy, or peace. Satan's object was to keep them deceived and to draw back and deceive God's children. One thing I want us to notice here very carefully. Now, the, the timing here is 1844, but the principles that come out of this vision are very significant for us today as well. It's always Satan's purpose to try and occupy the place of Christ. And when people don't realize that, they will come to a place where they will pray to God and who will answer their prayer. Satan. Satan. Isn't that interesting? If you notice the two prayers, you know, this shocked me when I first saw it. The first group they prayed and they said what? My Father, give us thy spirit. Who answered? Jesus. The second group, they said what? Father, give us thy spirit. And who answered? Satan. It's exactly the same prayer. 
How is it that you can pray the right words and have Satan answer your prayer? That, that should cause you to really think as to how you understand the truth and what you understand regarding the truth. So keep that in mind, that's of significance. So these women were weeping for Tammuz. Well, who is Tammuz? Tammuz was the son of Nimrod and Samiramis, or so it is believed, or so did Samiramis want people to believe, because when Nimrod died, she said he went up to the sun, and then she became pregnant, and it obviously wasn't Nimrod. So she came up with the story that a ray of the sun came into her belly, and this child is really Nimrod returned, or a reincarnation of the sun god, or the son of God. And that's really who Tammuz was. Of course, he was born there in December. What date was it again? 25. <laughs> Everybody knows. Okay, so that's Tammuz, that's the sun god. And, and it, it came to be that uh, Nimrod, Samaramis, and Tammuz were worshipped as the first trinity that we know of in history. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details of that. There's a DVD there at the back that, that deals with all this. So I'm not going to go into the, the details of it. But we find something interesting that from Babylon, this concept of three, the worship of three as the sun god traveled everywhere. In Babylon, we just said it in Egypt, it was Osiris, Horus, and Isis, or Ra. In Greece, it was Zeus, Apollo, and Athena. In India, it was Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. In Rome, it was Jupiter, Mars, and Venus, and on and on and on, all the different cultures and all the different nations. You find the same concept, different names. Same idea and same concept. So these people, these Church members were involved in the worship that has to do with Tammuz, and Tammuz has to do with the Trinity. In the church, just before the close of probation, according to Ezekiel. Now, who would have thought that this would happen? And Jesus is showing to Ezekiel what's taking place. And that's why I find it interesting when people say, you know, what are you talking about this Trinity business? It's, it's, it's a side issue. Brothers and sisters, we're not off the charts when we talk about the Godhead. Mm -hmm. We are right on cue. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel says, only those who recognize these abominations and sigh and cry for them will receive the mark. That's why we have a very significant and important responsibility. Let's go on. Verse 15, then said he unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? You know, Jesus doesn't want Ezekiel to miss anything. He keeps asking him that question. Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. Well, what could be greater than the members now of the church involved in this false worship that has to do with the Trinity, that has to do with Tammuz? Verse 16, and he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men, with their backs toward the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, and they worshipped the sun towards the east. Who are these ancient men that we talked about before? Leaders. 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 Between the porch and the altar. Now, the porch and the altar, that's a public place, a public area. Uh, and I don't mean that anyone could, could go there. But it's no longer now behind a secret hidden door. It's now out in the courtyard between the porch and between the altar. And these men have turned their back to the temple of God. And they are worshipping the sun towards the east. That means that these men at one point knew and understood the true God. But now they're making a choice to turn their backs to him and worship who? 
the Son. According to Ezekiel's prophecy, brothers and sisters, there is going to be sun worship in the Seventh-day Adventist church just before the close of probation. That's what it says. And we need to be able to understand these things for ourselves. Well, what is it about this sun worship? You know, when God set up the temple, we're talking about the sanctuary uh, last night with some people. God uh, had his people build the temple in particular dimensions. The gate of the temple was always on the east side. So that when you were coming into the temple, you had your back to the sun and you worship God towards the west. And the reason God set, the, set it up this way is because all the pagans would actually worship towards the east because they worship the sun. It was sun worship. So God is saying, my system is not sun worship. It is the opposite. I am the God of the sun. I am the God who made the sun. You worship me by turning your backs to the sun and acknowledging me as the creator. And so they would turn to the west. And so these men were right there in the court. They turned their backs to God and they worshiped the sun towards the the east towards the sun rising. This was what was taking place. So these men worshiping the sun towards the east, what does this mean for us today? Are, is, it, is it true? Is it possible? Are, are we going to see open public sun worship advocated by the leaders of the church? That's what it seems to say, isn't that right? And when brothers and sisters, when we talk about sun worship, the tendency for us is to think Sunday. Isn't that right? Mm -hmm. Yes, Sunday will soon attack the church. But Sunday was not all that was involved in sun worship. Sun worship is to worship the sun god. Keeping Sunday is an acknowledgement of the sun god, but that's not the only way that sun worship takes place. Worshiping the sun god begins first and foremost here. This is really what is happening. So Christ is taking Ezekiel on this progressive abomination that is getting worse and worse and worse. First starts at the gate and doesn't see anyone there. Then he sees the secret worship brought in by the leaders secretly that he had to uncover. And then that secret worship gets bad enough that it spills over and it affects the laity and then gets to such a bad point that the leaders can now publicly come out before the people and openly worship the sun towards the east. That's the progression that he's seeing in this vision. And God says, this is not something that happened thousands of years ago. This is happening today, brothers and sisters. That's a serious matter. So what about sun worship? If we go in, the, in history very quickly here, it tells us that three became the most universal number of deities. Sun worship is one of the most primitive forms of religion. An early man sometimes distinguished between rising, midday, and setting sun. The Egyptians, for example, divided the sun god into three deities, Horus, Ra, and Osiris, or different options there. So there were three stages, and the sun god, and the worship of the sun god, was really the worship of the three in one, and one in three god. Because they saw these three phases would be very fit symbols for Nimrod, Samaramis, and Tammuz. And they said, well, it's all one sun with three stages. So three, and one, and one in three. That's where the idea of three in one comes from. Uh, historically. And so, of course, they put this together and this became a symbol and a picture, a picture form of the sun god. You put three and one, one, three, and the, these pagans, you know, say, oh, wow, this is really neat. This is how they worship the sun. And you find these uh, pagan etchings and drawings still uh, available in archaeological, uh, archaeological diggings as well as in modern day. Anyway, like I said, there's a, there's uh, there's a DVD at the back that goes in a, bit, a little bit more detail about this called the Gods of Babylon. Some of you might have seen it. But anyway, the interesting thing here is you find this, this produces a triangle. 
And this triangle is an equilateral triangle. In other words, all sides are equal. And if you measure the angles of each, uh, of each corner here in this, in this triangle, each angle is how many degrees? 60 degrees. And of course, it's obvious 60 and 60 and 60 is easily abbreviated as 666. So then now a number could signify this picture. And that's where the 666 sun worship really comes from. And so God says this will be in the church. You know, someone will scratch your head and say, what are you talking about? I haven't seen anything like that in the church. Well, let's see what else takes place. And there's different ways to draw that. Uh, you know, it's the image here. Sometimes they take the interlocking sections and that, uh, that image or that symbol there is called the triketra. What's it called? Try catcher. Okay, that's good. Everybody knows that. The three in one and one in three. God was not happy about this particular form of worship in any way, shape, or form. Numbers 33, 52 says, Then speaking to the children of Israel, you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their pictures and destroy all their molten images and quite plug down all their high places. God was not happy about the pictures because the pictures stood for a false understanding and concept of God. It so happens that when the pictures are there, it meant that the concept was there. And it's not the picture in and of itself that God has a problem with, but the picture stands for something. That's where the problem is. And, and, and God wanted to destroy anything that would lead his people into this false worship. Now today we have the same picture still alive and well. For example, here is a book about the Trinity and on the cover there is the picture of the sun God. This is the modern day name for the ancient sun god. You know, you can tell a book by its cover, isn't that right? And there's the picture right there. You know, isn't that interesting? And they colored it in for you. The flaming, fiery disks of the sun, sun worship. Now, it's interesting that Rome has something to say about this particular aspect. Catholic reasons for keeping Sunday. You ever wonder why Rome keeps Sunday? Here's one reason. Because it is a day dedicated by the apostles to the honor of the most holy trinity. Now remember, the Trinity is which God? It is the Son God. Now Rome claims that all its practices are biblical. That's why they throw in the apostles there. The apostles had nothing to do with any Trinity. So in other words, they're saying, we keep Sunday because it has to do with the Trinity. We keep Sunday because it's the Son God. And that was the day that we worship the Son God on. And so we see this uh, illustrated in many, many examples, many pictures. Here's another book uh, about the Trinity. And in the picture, they see it enlarged there. You see three golden disks. Isn't that right? That's the three disks of the sun. Now, if you look at this picture, most people will say it's a picture of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's biblical, but not so. This is actually pagan sun worship that has infiltrated the church. So if we look at that book a little closer, this book about the Trinity, interestingly enough, it is authored by three people. You know, I, I find these things, I don't know, they just stand out. Maybe it's an accident. Maybe not. I don't know, maybe they thought if they use three authors, the charm will work. I don't know. But that's interesting. And that image is plastered all through the book. In every chapter you find that image. That's interesting. This book actually is very similar to someone else's image that he's wearing on his, uh, on his hat there. This is the Pope not too long ago, earlier this year. They had a special gathering. And it was interesting, someone pointed out, this out to me, I, I didn't know that, but notice the image here. Does it, uh, 
have any resemblance? It's the same thing. The three Israelites. This is the high priest of the sun god today. Isn't that right? Amen. We believe that. That's the scripture says that. And the number that he is identified by in scripture is what number? 666. Six, six, six. And here we have a book that is published by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And on the cover of the book, we have the picture of the God that this man is the high priest of. Now, brothers and sisters, this is fulfillment of what we're reading about here, that poor Ezekiel was shown. Open, public, sun worship in, among, God's people, just before the close of probation. You know what that means? We're very close to the close of probation. You better believe it. We're very, very close. Actually, in this book, we're, we're, we're told this is how open it is. Notice what it says on page 273. The oneness in nature and character of the three persons of the Godhead raises the very useful question of prayer, praise, and worship. That's the issue in the last days, right? And then it asks the question, what, what about direct prayer to the Holy Spirit? Good question. Here's the answer. While we have no clear example of or direct command to pray to the Spirit in Scripture, doing so does have, in principle, some implicit biblical support. It only seems logical that God's people can pray directly to and worship the Holy Spirit. And the understanding of the Holy Spirit here is that it is a different individual to the Father and the Son. It is a third one who has his own throne, maybe. I don't know. Not in heaven. Now, I don't know if you caught that, but this is really open. This is what is recommended by the theologians and the leaders to God's people. They're saying, we feel that it is logical and sensible and biblical to worship and to pray to the Holy Spirit. Now, brothers and sisters, they just told you there, we don't have an example in the scripture and we don't have instruction in the scripture. But we think it's biblical. That's a contradiction. That's adding. That's adding. That's right. That's adding. We say, well, we have no examples and we have no instruction to do that in the Bible. But we think that doing that is biblical. That does not make sense. You have to be a theologian to reason this way. To say that this is not in the Bible, but we think it's biblical. Brothers and sisters, this is, I'm not saying this to be funny. This is the tragedy that we have among us today. And this is recommended to God's people. And this is actually obeyed by many of God's people. And you find this public worship. I've, I've heard prayers to the Holy Spirit, have you? And I've noticed that they're actually increasing. As the truth is trying, as God is trying to restore the truth to His people, it's like this opposition is increasing. Who else prays to the Holy Spirit? Let's have a look here. Yeah, that's the same, same publisher. Athanasian Creed, we read that with Ahmed earlier. So basically, Rome says, this is the Catholic faith. We worship one God in the Trinity and the Trinity in unity without either confusing the persons or dividing the substance. The person of the Father is one and the sons is another and the Holy Spirit is another. Is this what we found in the Bible just earlier? The Spirit is the Spirit of Christ Himself. It is not another. But Rome says we worship three in one and one in three, and the Spirit is another. Then it says, but, there's, uh, but the Godhead of the Father, Son, and Spirit is one, their glory equal, and their majesty co-eternal. Interestingly enough, in the book, uh, Documents for Vatican II, I was here, a brother here shared this with me last time we were here. You remember Vatican II in the 60s, and where Rome decided that they were going to take extra measures to bring in the lost brethren, and so on and so forth. Interestingly, uh, Pope John the, what's that? 20. 23rd. At the end there, it says he is having a prayer to 
the Holy Spirit for the success of the ecumenical council. That's who he's praying to. And this is what he says. <clears throat> oh, Holy Spirit, sent by the Father in the name of Jesus. Now remember, in their understanding, this is someone other than Christ and the Father. Someone else. Who are present in the church and thus infallibly guided. Pour forth, we pray, the fullness of thy gifts upon the ecumenical council. We pray also for those sheep who are not now of the one fold of Jesus Christ, that even as they glory in the name of Christian, they may come at last to unity under the governance of the one shepherd. Amen. Who's the one shepherd? And who are the lost brethren? That's all of you, huh? And me. And they're praying to the Holy Spirit. Remember we read earlier, some people pray to God and Satan answered. And you know, Satan's been busy answering this prayer. And the fact that we see what Ezekiel prophesied and how it's coming to the church is a fulfillment of what, we're, what has been prophesied and is really what exactly Satan wants to do through that system. And that's what's been recommended to God's people to do, isn't that right? To pray through the Holy Spirit as someone else. Actually, in that book, they say, you know, if you, want, if you want forgiveness, you go and pray to Jesus. If you want the gifts of the Spirit and power to overcome, you go pray to the Holy Spirit. It's like you choose, like a menu. That's what our worship has come down to. If you want comfort or something, you go pray to the Father. Is this how it works, brothers and sisters? It is if you believe in the Trinity. You see, when you think these brethren are, are sharing some of these ideas, you say, this is so non-logical. This is so non-biblical. You know why they say some things that are so out there? It's because they are enslaved to this idea that they have accepted as truth. The idea that God is one in three and three in one. And Sunday is coming soon, don't worry about that. But before Sunday comes, the sun God is already here. And it doesn't, we don't have to wait for Sunday in order for, there, uh, for it to be an abomination. It's already here. So here is what we're told in Review and Herald, March 18, 1884. The Lord has a controversy with his professed people in these last days. Ministers will urge upon the people the necessity of keeping the first day of the, of the week. Why is that? Because they're already worshiping the sun god. It's only logical to worship on the sun day. You know, people are just waiting for that to happen. Then they will wake up. But we're seeing here that the abomination started long before that. Long before that. Anyway, let's go on. Our time is running very fast. You still awake? Yes. Oh, yes. We just have a, have a little bit more to go. Can, can I... Can we go a bit? Okay. We're almost there. Verse 17. Then he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Brothers and sisters, have you seen this? Have you taken note of what the Bible says in this prophecy? That's really what God is saying to us. Is it a light thing that the house of Judah, to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence and have returned to provoke me to anger. And lo, they put the branch to their nose. What's that mean? That's a proverbial expression. That they are insolent. They will not be corrected. They're provoking God to anger. Can you imagine how Ezekiel would have felt looking at all these abomination after abomination after abomination? And he's seeing the situation that's developing. All these different things that he sees that God is showing him. Verse 18, therefore, God says, I also will deal in my fury. My eyes shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet will I not hear them. Strange words for God to say, isn't that right? 
When God says, you know, call upon me, I will answer, ask and you shall receive. God says to Ezekiel, listen, this situation will drive me from, from my sanctuary to the point that when they cry in my ear with a loud voice, I will no longer hear. You know why? Because the worship has been so perverted that people have lost a true conception of God and their prayers are actually going somewhere else. And we have no excuse when God has revealed that information to us. The fact that this is written here signifies that we need to take note of that. So that's the end of chapter 8. We haven't even gotten to chapter 9 yet. Because we were told to study chapter 9. But brothers and sisters, the bulk of the prophecy and the import, the preparation for chapter 9 is really chapter 8. We'll quickly, very quickly go through chapter 9. Chapter 9 will need no comment. All we have to do is read it. And it will make perfect sense now that we understood what is happening just before that. What led up to what took place. <laughs> but before we do, I want us to read something. Because in 1 Peter 4.17, God says something that is serious. It says, for the time is come, the judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Who's the house of God today? The professed house of God. The church, our church, isn't that right? That's where judgment begins. And that's what we see in chapter 9. That's the judgment. So next chapter, chapter 9, <clears throat> verse 1. I, I don't think I'll need to explain anything. Notice carefully what he says. He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near, even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. Brothers and sisters, I want you to pay careful attention. One comment. The last thing that we see is happening in the church is open public sun worship. The next thing that we see is destruction. You know what that means? <coughs> the system will not return. According to the prophecy, the last thing that is happening corporately in the system is open sun worship followed by destruction. That's what it says. There are individuals who can sigh and cry and receive the mark. But the structure does not recover. According to the prophecy, it's not there. Verse 2, And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lies toward the... That's where the deception is. That's where destruction comes from. And every man slowed a weapon in his hand. And one man among them clothed with linen, with a writer's inkhorn by his side. And he went in and stood beside the brazen altar. Verse 3, And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub whereupon he was, to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. And the Lord said unto him, and this is where we started. Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. Verse 5, And to the others he said in mine hearing, Go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women. But come not near any man upon whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary, then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. You understand now the significance of these words. Amen. Only those who sign cry for the abominations are spared. Verse 7. And he said unto them, Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go ye forth. And they went forth and slew in the city. And it came to pass while they were slaying them. And I was left that I fell on my face and cried and said, Ah, oh, Lord God. Will thou destroy all the residue of Israel in thy pouring out of thy fury upon Jerusalem? Poor Ezekiel. Poor Ezekiel. The, the, the 
picture was so grim that he just collapsed. And he says, Lord, is, is, every, is no one left, Lord? You're going to destroy everyone? That's what it looked like to Ezekiel. That those who would be marked were so few that it looked like to Ezekiel that everyone would be taken up in this destruction. See, brothers and sisters, it's the abominations that happen that bring about this destruction, sadly. That's what we're having. Today, verse 9, then said he unto me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceeding great, and the land is full of blood, and the city full of perverseness. For they say, The Lord hath forsaken the earth, and the Lord seeth not. And as for me also, mine eyes shall not spare, neither will I have pity. But I will recompense their way upon their head. Very serious words. That's words of judgment, isn't that right? It's a serious thing to know the true God and then turn to the worship of the Son. It's a very, very serious thing. It's what Satan desires to happen in order to drive Christ from his sanctuary. And this is one of the biggest blocks to the truth that Christ can inhabit this sanctuary and live in us and move in us and produce the fruit that he produced when he was here on earth. The theology that says Christ is up there in heaven and he has sent someone else. That comes from the sun worship of Babylon. That's what, that, this was God's answer. And then the last verse 11, it says, And behold, the man clothed with linen, which had the inkhorn by his side, reported the matter, saying, I have done as thou hast commanded me. He came back quick, didn't he? While the others are still destroying. You know, there was only one person to mark, and there were five, five or six, depending how you read the language, but there were five there destroying. Isn't that right? And the man who had the inkhorn, he came back right quick and he said, I've done the job. You know what that means? Close of probation. And not too many were marked. How sad. There wasn't too many in the days of Christ who accepted Christ. And brothers and sisters, this here is really the biblical 9-11. Ezekiel chapter 9 and verse 11. The one that we just read, that's when probation closes for God's people. You're never, you're never going to forget that verse now, I hope. Amen. Ezekiel 9.11 is Biblical 9.11. That's the last verse in the chapter. Chapter 9 and verse 11. Brothers and sisters, we have a very serious task before us. I know many of us sitting here, many of you, we know people who are sadly still involved in this deception, isn't that right? You know, we share this message sometimes, I think we're in New Guinea, and after we shared the message, people came up and, and uh, they said, you know, when you were speaking, we, we felt very, very happy, and we also felt very, very sad, both at the same time. You know, happy because we know we're hearing the truth and understanding the deception, and very sad because we know there are so many others that we wish were here, isn't that right? You know, when Jesus came to Jerusalem, that last time he was riding in, he knew what Jerusalem would do and they would reject him. He stopped there on the hill and what did he do? He cried because the, most of the people down there in the city would reject him and would be destroyed. And the Bible says here, those who are marked are those who sigh and cry for the abominations that are done. We have a responsibility to sigh and cry. We have a responsibility to pray and seek the Lord's help and wisdom to pull people out of the fire before it is too late. And out of the fire means out of the deception, into the knowledge of the truth and the true God. So this is the 
biblical 9-11, I just want you to consider that our role and our responsibility is illustrated in what Christ did. You know, sighing and crying doesn't mean yelling at people and telling them they're wrong and you're right. Some people sadly uh, take that approach, not yelling with a loud voice, but, but their manner is, is such that is repulsive. That's not the purpose of God telling us this. And it's not to condemn. This information is not shared to condemn people and, and you know, uh, co- put them into destruction. It's actually to rescue people. And in order for us to receive the mark, we need to recognize that and have the right spirit and right attitude. The sighing and crying, you know, uh, as we're told, you know, where to sigh and cry, show the house of Jacob their sins and, and God's people their transgressions. But we need to do it in the same way Christ did it. In order for us to really have any impact and in order for us to receive the seal. So I want to challenge you with the responsibility that we have. I know this is a, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Most people who will hear this will probably walk away because it sounds unbelievable. But prophecy cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus said this will happen. He showed it to Ezekiel. And this is not yet to happen, brothers and sisters. This has happened. The next thing is close of probation. Are you ready? Am I ready? And are those in our sphere of influence receiving the benefit of our sighing and our crying, if by any means we might save some? That's the message I want to leave with you. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.